but she will be listening to the arguments and participating in the resolution of the case. Case says, the first case is 19-60662, Hopkins versus Secretary of State. Mr. Stewart. May it please the court. I'm Scott Stewart on behalf of the Mississippi Secretary of State. This case involves five facial claims to two parts of the Mississippi, Mississippi Constitution. The Eighth Amendment claim has, of course, taken center stage in the case, and I'd like to get right to that issue. But before I do, I want to address briefly, perhaps in just about six sentences, four other claims in the case, in case I don't get to return to them. The plaintiffs bring an equal protection claim against Mississippi's permanent disenfranchisement of felons. Excuse me, would you speak up, please? Of course. Thank you, Judge Jones. Um, the, briefly to address the, the four other claims in the case, uh, the plaintiffs bring an equal protection claim against Mississippi's permanent disenfranchisement of felons, and they bring three claims against Mississippi's legislative process for re-enfranchising re felons. The panel was right to reject all four of those claims. Supreme Court precedent squarely forecloses the plaintiff's claim that the equal protection bars, clause bars a state from permanently disenfranchising felons, and the plaintiffs lack standing to sue the secretary, the only defendant they sued in this case, over the legislative process for re-enfranchising felons. Uh, the secretary has no involvement in that legislative process, so he does not cause and cannot redress the plaintiff's injury. Uh, we're quite content with the panel's ruling on those four claims. We feel differently about the panel's ruling on the Eighth Amendment claim, of course, and I'll now move to that. I'd like to cover uh, both why Supreme Court precedent, in particular Richardson versus Ramirez, forecloses that claim and why the claim fails as a matter of law. Anyway. Can you please move closer to the microphone or else speak up? Sure, I, I apologize, Judge Elrod. Um, with, 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 with respect to uh, Richardson, Richardson versus Ramirez, um, that claim has really two key pillars to it. Uh, the first pillar is that Section 2 of the 14th Amendment means what it says. It recognizes that a state may disenfranchise felons. It may do so permanently. Um, and the second pillar of the case is that Section 1 of the 14th Amendment does not override Section 2. Um, that reasoning applies fully here uh, because to credit plaintiff's claim would be to rule that Section 1 of the 14th Amendment overrides Section 2. It's only through Section 1 of the 14th Amendment that the Eighth Amendment applies to the states. So as a structural constitutional matter, which was critical and central to the court's reasoning in Richardson, the Eighth Amendment claim fails as a matter of law. Um, I, I would emphasize the, the facial nature of the challenge here. There was a similar type of a claim uh, at issue in Richardson, this question of, hey, does the Equal Protection Clause flatly bar uh, the disenfranchisement of felons, despite the 14th Amendment's other protections for the right to vote? The court said no, um, it does not flatly bar that. And again, by a parity of reasoning, the Eighth Amendment here does not flatly bar the permanent disenfranchisement of felons. Um, the, uh, the, the plaintiffs have raised a number of responses to that. The panel um, raised a couple of them. Um, there was a suggestion that, hey, that, that reasoning is that it would, would mean, in effect, that um, one constitutional provision um, preempts another, or that uh, this Section 2 of the 14th Amendment somehow immunizes um, any felon disenfranchisement law. Um, we, of course, 
disagree with those points. You don't need to accept either of those points to agree with our position, which is simply, again, it rests on the facial nature of the claim, the re reasoning in Richardson. We're quite comfortable, for example, with the Supreme Court's ruling in Hunter versus Underwood that uh, certain as applied equal protection claims could have force um, and very strong force, obviously, in, in, in Hunter versus Underwood itself uh, against a Section 2 type authority. But uh, that's not what we have in this case. Mr. Watson, you've waived uninterrupted time, is that correct? That's correct, Your Honor. So um, if, your, if your argument is that Richardson forecloses um, the issues in this case, what was the purpose of the remand in Richardson on the plaintiff's alternative um, contentions? What, if, if, if all discussion for all seasons on challenges um, were foreclosed, then what would be the purpose of the remand? Um, to allow certain other kinds of challenges there. There, there that um, the remand, uh, Judge Douglas, was on a, hey, how is this being administered in practice? Uh, we're comfortable that there could, with the proposition, um, that there could be sort of as applied challenges against, I, I think Hunter versus Underwood is a good example of that, that a direct square violation of the prohibition on race discrimination embodied in the Equal Protection Clause is not permitted by Section 2. Um, so I think the remand in Richardson is sort of, I think, of a piece with that. Um, so we're not saying that Richardson um, necessarily on its own you know, forecloses all other challenges. It just, it's a very strong bar to uh, facial claims that uh, a state cannot disenfranchise. That's, the, that's, I think, the key difference. Um, moving on to, I think, um, if I may, the sort of question of it, uh, if, if, even, if, even without Richardson, um, the case is very strong here that uh, felon disenfranchisement also is not punishment. Again, even without Richardson because, um, sorry, felon disenfranchisement, permanent felon disenfranchisement does not uh, create an Eighth Amendment problem or really an Eighth Amendment issue um, because Permanent felon disenfranchisement is not punitive and does not fall under the Eighth Amendment's restrictions uh, at all. Um, I think it's worth sketching out um, the right analysis or how this, this issue should be approached because we respectfully disagree with the way the panel did approach it. The Supreme Court has emphasized uh, in Smith versus Doe, um, you know, a number of other cases that when you are asking whether, say, a statute imposes punishment, you look at the text and structure of the statute. That's what you look at first and foremost. You see what did the legislature intend and you know, at step one, and if they didn't intend something punitive, you move to step two and say, hey, on the face of the statute, is this nonetheless kind of punitive in fact um, in a way that would override the intent? Um, so here, we're looking at the face of section 241 at step one. Uh, that provision is all about qualifications to vote. Um, I think as Judge Jones pointed out in her panel stage dissent, you know, look, it, this provision lays out you know, age qualifications, registration qualifications, citizenship, residency qualifications, and right there along all of those um, proper regulations of the right to vote is a list of felonies for which someone is permanently disenfranchised. Well, On the we know what the original intent of Section 241 was, don't we? Um, I, I think the original intent, in, as, as first enacted, of course, we agree, Judge Graves, that um, it was a bad, a bad intent and it was discriminatory um, with respect to the, num the, the crimes That's chosen. the reason it was enacted. Isn't that right? Um, I, I, not, not for a punitive intent, Your Honor. I think it was just a, it's, it, there's a distinct question, for example, whether 
um, there's an improper motive and whether something is a constitutional punishment. Um, the, I, I, the plaintiffs have not pointed to any evidence that Section 241 um, is a constitutional punishment. Again, on the face of it, it is about qualifications and regulation of the electoral franchise. So I, again, I think your, your point- I agree that the, uh, it was an invalid, even accepting that it's a voter qualification, at its origin, it was an invalid one. Um, I, I think as to racially impermissible, kind of under 100 versus Underwood analysis, you know, that provision, you know, I think this court, this court on Bonk has recognized that, yes, that would be the case if, if it were never, never touched again, Your Honor. So, I thought- So, um, I, uh, are you saying that all voter qualifications have to be either or, they're either non-penal or they're penal, or- why wouldn't it be, even if we accept your argument that it's been plopped into the section that calls voter qualifications, nonetheless, what the state's doing is saying to somebody, because of your crime, we're throwing you out of the electorate. That sounds punitive. So the question is, is it binary? Do qualifications all have to be either or, or can something be both a qualification, but it's a punitive one? I mean, I, th I think it is. I mean, I think it is binary, Your Honor, and I think you do look. Your answer is yes. Qualifications are always age, residency. Those aren't punitive. But even here where states are saying because of your crime, we're throwing you out of the electorate, you're saying that's not punitive. Um, that's not punitive here, Your Honor. I think the reason I'm getting a little bit, um, I'm hoping I'm understanding the question correctly, is I think in these, you know, is something punitive or not cases, the Supreme Court really is looking at, you know, it's an either or fork in the road question. I'm not saying that just because- What's the best authority for that? I, I mean, I, I think Smith versus Doe is a good example. Mendoza-Martinez is a good example. I just you know, is this punitive or not? I mean, again, we're, we're asking the question, at least in the Eighth Amendment context, you know, is something punishment? You know, in, in other constitutional provisions, we're also asking, you know, is this punishment? And is, is it therefore subject to things like the double jeopardy clause, perhaps the due process clause, um, some of those other clauses? So it, it really, you know, is getting at, you know, ultimately, is this a punishment? Or, or not, and and what I'm saying is that you know you look as Smith versus Doe and other cases tell us is you look at the text and structure and here all of those markers um, as, as I think the Supreme Court put in Kansas versus Hendricks itself is nothing on the face of Section 241 shows a punitive intent. It shows again just qualifications for electors, qualifications for the right to vote, and it's the text and structure that you look at for that. And it's at the second step where you can say, okay, you know, whatever the intent is, um, is it punitive in fact or is, is it overcome? Now, it's a, it's a steep burden there, especially on a facial challenge. I mean, the plaintiffs have to provide the clearest proof uh, to overcome what on its face is a non-penal regulation of the franchise. And, and here, you know, as, moving to those factors, Your Honor, um, they just haven't done that. I mean, felon disenfranchisement, uh, we've cited cases going back well over a century recognizing that um, in, in our country's tradition, felon disenfranchisement is not a punishment. Um, we, it does not serve the ends of punishment, deterrence, retribution, those sorts of things. Um, it, is, uh, it, it has a non-penal aim of regulating who is fit to involve, be involved in making our laws, which is a very, very serious subject. You know, my friend, Mr. Youngwood, you know, emphasizes, hey, look, voting is really important. It's a fundamental right. And you know, look, voting is important, but Voting is not just a right, it's a significant responsibility. I mean, it's, it's the act of trying to control other people's lives. And what the Second Amendment and what our traditions recognize in disenfranchising felons for so long is that 
you know, there are certain um, features of character and judgment that felons, people convicted of, of those kinds of offenses, show that they are potentially incapable well, of property. The we're talking is not just people convicted, it's people who have, citizens of Mississippi, who have successfully, completely fulfilled their sentences. Correct? That's right, Your Honor. So just doing the math, how many states presently um, forbid, permanently disenfranchise a significant number of their citizens who have fulfilled their entire sentence and states don't give first offender exceptions, nor do they limit it to violent crimes, murder, and rape. How many states are in that little Eighth Amendment orbit that we would be looking at? Your Honor, I'm, I'm not sure that I have the exact number with, with the caveats. The three, the three categories are permanently disenfranchise their own citizens, even though they fully successfully fulfilled their sentence. Number two, the state doesn't give an exception for first offenders. And number three, they don't limit it to vote crimes, murder, and rape. Right. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a smaller number as you go through all those, John. I mean, I think the permanent disenfranchisement number, it's, you know, around a third of the states. I mean, you might debate a couple of the states. Um, I, I think that, I mean, again, that's at the sort of, is this subject to the, you know, it, you know is this a cruel and unusual punishment? If it isn't even a punishment, Your Honor, but... Again, I mean, I, I would emphasize... I'm assuming it's a punishment for the sake of argument. Sure. I'm assuming we've had a precipitous trend nationwide to restore rights. Of course, Texas and Louisiana do. Mississippi doesn't. And I'm, I'm, I've given you a hypothetical about the category I'm interested in. Yeah. Um, but but what you, you began your argument by saying, well, the Constitution can't declare itself unconstitutional, essentially. Section 1 can't invalidate. That hasn't been the story in the Eighth Amendment context, right? The Fifth Amendment recognizes capital punishment three times, and yet we've got the entire line of Eighth Amendment law overturning state laws. Well, I think it's a little different there, Your Honor, because I, I don't think you have an, a, a, a kind of a, a square, like you can execute you know, any offender for whatever the offense is kind of a prohibition, even as the, the Constitution recognizes capital punishment. We do in Section 2 have a square recognition. State, states can disenfranchise. It doesn't impose any temporal limits on, on that, Your Honor. So I think the Eighth Amendment kind of runs into a much kind of clearer, firmer bar in Section 2. I would also say just on, on kind of the category issue, Judge Higginson, um, two points. I mean, let me understand. Your, your argument is Section 2 is a stronger bar constitutionally than the text of the Fifth Amendment? Well, I, I, I think it's the overriding of a square, square constitutional text would be clearer here because the court would be saying, like, okay, even though Section 2 allow, recognizes that states can disenfranchise, imposes no temporal limits on that power, we are saying the Eighth Amendment overrides that square allowance. At, at the least in the capital punishment context, Your Honor, I mean, yes, the Supreme Court has ruled out uh, capital punishment for certain categories of offenders, but it hasn't ruled the death penalty wholly unconstitutional or unconstitutional, I think it's fair to say, in a, a sweeping majority of its applications or anything like that. Um, I, uh, I, sure. You know, if I, if I can, you know, mention two other things on, on sort of the cruel and unusual piece, and then I, I'd like to, you know, kind of hope, hope I drive home a couple points more on, on why we're not talking about a constitutional punishment here. Um, one is that around 48 states or so do disenfranchise felons. You know, yes, they end up drawing the lines a little differently, but I think this gets to why a categorical Eighth Amendment type analysis really just does not fit here. Um, when you're talking about where to draw the line, I mean, that's much more of a legislative task. When you're talking about sort of the Supreme Court's line of cases about whether something is categorically unconstitutional or not, 
we're talking about very clean categories. You know, death is different and juveniles are different are the short versions of both those. You can see those categories, agree with them or not, they are clear. Here, it's sort of where do you draw the line? And states can draw it and have through the history of our country drawn different lines. Um, if I can emphasize just a Also, it seems to me that the line, though, that principally the plaintiffs are saying is that it's permanent versus temporary. And that's a very clean line. Uh, certainly, the state may push back and say certain, certain crimes, certain uh, convictions perhaps could be permanent, others might not be. But if you get into that, but, but a straight up, uh, if it's permanent, uh, that's a punishment. That's the line. What's wrong with that insofar as fitting within your analysis? Sure, Your Honor. I mean, I, I think, you know, I think we still do have something of a line drawing problem. But I think, Judge Southwick, I think it points back to a little bit about why this is not a punishment at all. I mean, again, when states are disenfranchising, at least when Mississippi's disenfranchising, it, it, it's about a qualitative judgment. I mean, it goes back, you know, a long time that, you know, the, the Supreme Court said this in the Hawker case. It said it more recently in the Smith versus Doe case that, you know, look, when regulating important matters of public welfare, states can make um, universal rules. They don't have to make individualized determinations. You know, sure, some, some folks could reform, become very responsible, good citizens, um, could, could potentially become um, good voters. But the court can, or the, the, the people of Mississippi can say, hey, look, you know, we think as a category that this is an unlikely group who's going to be fit to exercise the franchise. We think that um, permanently barring from it or presumptively permanently barring from that is appropriate. And I that may have a little more currency if all felons were disenfranchised, but they're not. It's a selected list under Section 241. So doesn't that undermine your argument that, well, felons permanently can't be trusted to exercise the franchise? Well, I think, I think Judge Wilson, you, you look at the nature of the judgment there, and, you know, states have over time, I mean, some states um, kind of draw the circle kind of bigger, other states draw it a bit more narrowly. I mean, some are, think election offenses are particularly bad. I mean, some might say, hey, you know, why just election offenses? Why not murder or some of those more horrible offenses? And I, I think it gets to the point that, I mean, one, I, I don't think it's a, a strike against Mississippi that, you know, we've kind of confined it to a set of uh, crimes that um, the people think are just especially problematic or worrisome um, from a severity of conduct, a judgment, a law-abiding, a law-making type standpoint. Um, so even though we, we could go broader, I, I think it is reasonable here. And I, I don't think, I think it's notable in this case that, um, you know, unlike, you know, Harness, there's not, there's, there's not really much of a challenge in the way of, you know, hey, these are the crimes you've selected, what's, what's wrong with them? Um, I guess the question if, is, what, at what point does the state's policy judgment become so random that offends the Constitution? Um, again, I mean, there's, if, if it's sort of random and arbitrary, Your Honor, I mean, I think that's, I, I mean, I think a different kind of a claim. What, I, what I'd say here, though, is that, I mean, it's, it's not a random set of crimes. I mean, a number of these are um, well-established, serious common law crimes. What's, what's the nexus between the crime and the determination that someone ought to be permanently denied the right to vote? For example, stealing timber. What's the connection between that and voting? Sure, Your Honor. So I, I want to answer that, that directly, but, you know, can I first emphasize just one point in response to the timber uh, theft? It, it's that... Again, I think it's important to recognize this is a facial claim. So the, the plaintiffs do like to emphasize timber larceny, but again, I mean, we're, they've gone gone after everyone, all of its applications, just gone after the entire entire thing. So they they only really get so much from the timber larcenist. But to, to get right to your question, Judge Graves, um, 
it's very fair to say that the people of Mississippi don't want to be governed by a thief. I mean, even if it's you know a small amount of money, I mean, dishonest in small things, dishonest in large is, is a reasonable determination. Again, I mean, the state could have drawn the circle more broadly. Um, it, it didn't. It's taken a different approach than some other states have taken. But I, I think that's the intuition. I mean, Judge Friendly recognized it. Recognized it. This court in Shepard versus Trevino uh, many decades ago recognized it. That um, you know somebody who's shown antipathy to the state's laws, especially with felonies, somebody who's broken the state's laws should not be, or a state could certainly reasonably think should not be involved in, in making those laws. And, and that's the qualitative judgment, and that's a reasonable judgment to make as a, a permanent matter. Again, other states may draw, do it a little bit differently, but it's certainly reasonable for Mississippi to have done it um, that way. A facial challenge means that all the felons who were convicted of uh, murder, murder and rape would also be re-enfranchised, right? Allegedly, if they've finished their sentences. Right. I mean, yes, Judge Jones, and that is the upshot of the plaintiff's argument. Um, they, and, I, and as far as theft goes, wasn't wasn't it Bernie Ebers who was the head of WorldCom in Mississippi? If he had been convicted in Mississippi, he'd be re-enfranchised. He stole millions and millions of dollars in what appeared to be a Ponzi scheme. He'd right. be re-enfranchised. Right. I mean, I think I I, I, I confess I, I don't know the particulars of those facts, but again, I mean, theft. I, I think it, it does point that you do get a, a number of ranges of, of theft, Your Honor. And again, we're talking about honesty and good judgment, and again, the act of voting, which again, we recognize is very important. Has burglary been removed from the statute? Am I correct about that? It has, Your Honor. So how do you draw the line between theft and burglary, since I mean, we're talking about moral character? Right, Your Honor. I mean, I think, you know, it's two, two thoughts on that, Your Honor. I mean, one is it is kind of a legislative judgment about, about things there. I think burglary, unfortunately, it, it had a taint in the state constitution at the time. Um, so, you know, there would have been other reasons for the state to uh, remove it, just given its kind of 1890 uh, provenance. But I think uh, the state and people made a different decision with respect to the other crimes. I mean, again, you know, states could draw the lines differently, but Mississippi has focused on these crimes. Um, if I can just mention one other point, you know, we've talked about the importance of voting and, you know, in a lot of going through a lot of the kind of Mendoza, uh, Mendoza Martinez factors, my friend emphasizes, you know, voting is really important. And you know, we recognize that, but a big response to that is when you're dealing with something, whether something's a punishment, I mean, these things are very, like, very often important, especially when they reach the Supreme Court. I mean, physical liberty, you don't get much more fundamental than physical liberty, and the Supreme Court has, in multiple cases, held <clears throat> that significant restrictions on physical liberty are not punitive. I mean, even indefinite civil commitment, that was Kansas versus Hendricks, um, pre-trial um, non-bail, uh, pre-trial uh, detention in United States versus Salerno, that's for somebody who is presumptively constitutionally innocent. Those are very, very severe restrictions. Again, the restriction or taking away of the right to vote simply is not comparable. Um, if I can just briefly mention before, before I, I sit back down, um, the Readmission Act, that's come up, and I'd like to just briefly say, um, with respect, the, the panel got the analysis on the Readmission Act wrong. Um, it should not have begun with the Readmission Act at all. It should have, again, first of all, looked at Section 241's text and structure. Um, to the extent it got to the Readmission Act, it needed to look at the broader context of the time. And I think the mistake the panel made was to look at one word, punishment, in one statute dealing with a different question and ruled that that kind of decided and dictated a significant constitutional question for all time. Um, 
again, I mean, as we've said in our briefing, that doesn't account for the reality that punishment can mean multiple things. I mean, again, the Second Circuit, the Eleventh Circuit have repeatedly used punishment to mean different things in the disenfranchisement context, but when push has come to shove, both of those courts have held that felon disenfranchisement or criminal disenfranchisement is not punitive. And if I can just add kind of another point about the reading of the Readmission Act, you know, customarily, when a court is reviewing, um, you know, just reviewing statutes, in addition to looking at text and structure, when they look kind of to broader context, the court should be applying certain canons like avoiding preemption, avoiding um, constitutional invalidation, avoiding major questions. The panel's decision in this case, um, with respect, ran afoul of all three of those points. I mean, again, the panel found preemption. The panel found the Readmission Act preempts would preempt Mississippi law, and it found preemption in order to reach a constitutional issue, a major constitutional issue, to invalidate Mississippi's permanent disenfranchisement of felons, and to do so in what is really the most implausible way. I mean, the panel held that the Readmission Act dictated that uh, permanent that disenfranchisement in Mississippi is an Eighth Amendment punishment. It did that in 1870. The Cruel and Unusual Punishments Clause was not incorporated against the state for more than 80 years. The idea that the uh, Readmission Act was dictating that reenfranchisement or disenfranchisement was a punishment um, for all purposes, for all times under the Eighth Amendment is simply not plausible, and it's not realistic to think that uh, that major question was answered at that time. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning, Your Honors. Uh, Jonathan Youngwood for the plaintiffs, uh, and may it please the court. Um, I've also waived um, any uninterrupted time, um, but I do want to begin with this. Um, I'm going to focus on, on the Eighth Amendment. We don't waive any of the other arguments. I'm happy to address them if the panel has questions. But the panel's decision in this case turned on the intersection of two bedrocks of our society, the right to vote, the fundamental right to vote, and the right to be protected against cruel and unusual punishment. It's important to recognize, however, what this case is not about. It is not about whether or not permanent disenfranchisement for certain crimes is barred by the Eighth Amendment. Our class is defined only to include individuals who have completed their sentence. Our positions and arguments, this case, does not rule out the possibility that some crimes, crimes that the Mississippi legislature has um, identified as ones deserving and then enforcing lifetime imprisonment, and those include most of the most heinous crimes that have been raised. Those are not what this case is about. Those cases might well, those individual circumstances, might well result in a citizen never voting again. But what is unconstitutional in 2024 is imposing punishment, the punishment of disenfranchisement beyond the sentence for the crime and continuing that undemocratic punishment for the rest of an individual's life. I want to start with Richardson. Spell that out a little more. So, so the diff I agree with you, murder and rape, the likely sentence is going to be very long and disenfranchised on that argument. What about election crimes? Those, those sentences are going to be short. Those defendants will have fulfilled them. Is your position, given that it's a facial attack, that we would have to say no state because of the Eighth Amendment 
can permanently disenfranchise someone who's been convicted of an election crime and fulfill the sentence? Is that, is that where we would have to I, Your Honor, I think a different law that only identified an re election crime, and there are some few states that single out those, I think it's four or five, according to the panel's analysis, that might be a different circumstance. The problem with 241, which is multiple, but includes what some of the questions went to, is its complete randomness of which crimes it identifies and how it ties them to this lifelong consequence. And to give just a few examples, you know, crimes that are excluded today from 241 include theft under Mississippi Code 974519, false acquisition of a prescription, welfare fraud, assault, aggregated assault, and simple assault on a police officer is excluded. Instead, what you have is largely crimes that were identified well more than 100 years ago, which I think both plaintiffs and the state agree what the purpose was behind that statute and the problems with that statute as it was enacted at the time. And they have nothing to do with a legitimate reason to disqualify somebody from voting. It goes a bit to the argument as to where this shows up in the Mississippi Constitution of the 1890s. So counsel argues that because it talks about things like age and residency and other things, and then the next thing is, did you commit one of the disenfranchising felonies, you're disqualified. And although not an argument, but in the brief, there's a comparison to the 11th Circuit's analysis of an Alabama statute um, on that. Mr. Youngwood, did I mis misinterpret the briefs, or has felon disenfranchisement been part of Mississippi's law since the 1830s? It, it, the, the 1890s amendment to the Constitution 1830s. Um, replaced prior laws, you are correct, Your Honor. And is it not also the case that um, as of the time of the framing of the Constitution, 11 states uh, disenfranchised felons? I'm sorry, you're on, which Constitution, Your Honor? I'm reading from Judge Friendly's opinion in the Green case. Yes. Talking about the history of the Bill of Rights, that the framers would not have uh, considered disenfranchisement to be unconstitutional, nearly, and he points out that um, uh, 11 states ado adopted uh, disenfranchisement between 1776 and 1821. 29 states had such provisions at the time of the 14th Amendment. Your Honor, I have no reason to dispute uh, Judge Friendly's um, statistics. Uh, another statistic he had was that as of the time of the Green decision in 1967, or it may be as of 1964 when the underlying um, acts took place, I'm not sure, there were 42 states at that time that did disenfranchise. That's true, but he also wrote before Richardson. He wrote before Romer v. Evans, where the court in 1996 described a principle that states may disenfranchise a convicted felon as, quote, unexceptionable. And in Crawford v. Marion County, where uh, that was Justice Stevens, of course, said identified felon disenfranchisement as a neutral and non-discriminatory reason. Um, Your Honor, the two uh, Supreme Court cases you uh, mentioned um, we're not Eighth Amendment cases. This case is not, the Eighth Amendment challenge is not Well, been. we take Supreme Court dicta, even if you consider this dicta, 
which probably is not very seriously. And of course, there's Trop v. Dulles itself, which started us on this path of judicial reimagining of the uh, penal code. Your Honor, if I could go to the um, perhaps several of your questions. That, I do not dispute that uh, felon disenfranchisement was common in the 1800s, in the 1700s, even in the 1900s, and certainly at the time of the Green decision. But because something was common 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, does not mean that it's not subject to Eighth Amendment analysis if, if it's punishment, and if it's cruel and unusual, and if there's been a change, a substantial change, which I think is undeniable here, undeniable here, in the national consensus on this issue. And it what, goes- what is, what is this issue? I mean, we're not looking at whether states can disenfranchise felons. We're really looking at, per Judge Southwick's question earlier, temporary versus permanent, or is it a randomness? Or what exactly is the issue where there's been this change, and how are we supposed to look at that? Uh, thank you, Your Honor. Um, I agree there's different ways to slice the data. Any way you slice it, the significant, significant minority, and to answer uh, the question on how many um, uh, disenfranchised permanently for rape or murder, um, we tried to count, it's about seven, it's a subset of the ones that the panel identified as of 2020, and then there are a few for election fraud, but you're at best at 20% of the states, which is obviously a very significant drop from 42. Counsel, and what I'm, yes. Sorry, I'm sorry, you can finish your answer, go ahead. Your Honor, I'm giving you statistics that are okay. largely in the paper. So, so in 1974, in the Richardson case, the argument was made, quote, that disenfranchisement is outmoded, and the more modern view is that it is essential to the process of rehabilitating the ex-felon and to be returned to his role in society as a fully participating citizen. Now, the Supreme Court acknowledged that that was a very powerful argument for the California legislature it said, it is not for us to choose one set of values over the other. In other words, if we were sitting in a committee in the Mississippi legislature listening to this argument about temporary versus permanent versus murder versus timber theft, your arguments may have a lot of purchase, but we are a court of law. And didn't the Supreme Court exclude exactly these kinds of considerations from the decision-making of a judge? Um, so, s several answers to that, Your Honor. First of all, if courts could not overrule legislatures based on facial challenges under the Eighth Amendment, there would be no facial challenges legitimate at all under the Eighth Amendment. What I would submit is the question, which I admit is a novel question, a novel question for this court, is whether or not voting rights, fundamental voting rights, are something that are punishment in the context of Mississippi, which I think is quite special because of the Readmission Act and because of the fact that it focuses only on Mississippi's uh, crimes, which I'll, I'll try to get to in a second, um, whether it's punishment and whether it's worthy of the same type of facial challenge that the Supreme Court has allowed in, I agree, other contexts such as death. Well, let me, let me ask you to draw out this Eighth Amendment for a minute because Last year, there were something like 13 executions in the United States. The year before that, there were maybe somewhere between 13 and 20. An article trumpeted the fact that the death penalty is um, on a 
clear path to extinction. So why not go after the real culprit here, which is the real Eighth Amendment thing that the Supreme Court has said clearly is subject to evolving standards and go after the death penalty? How is there any difference between your argument and, an, and the follow-on that the death penalty must now be unconstitutional? Uh, Your Honor, we're clearly not making any arguments about the death penalty. I understand that, I, I but think... logically speaking, where is there any difference between uh, your evolving standards pick and choose and the, and the constitutionality of the death penalty of the president? Your, Your Honor, I am not a death penalty expert, but I understand there are a multitude of reasons why um, executions might have declined. I think many of them relate to complications. I was reading in the paper this morning complications of finding a method of execution that a, a manufacturer will provide the chemicals and other things. I think there are a lot of reasons, and we're not making that argument. But until the law is that there are no facial challenges under the Eighth Amendment, the question will be what categories are worthy of challenge. And yes, Your Honor, if somehow 40 of the 50 states were um, moved towards no death penalty, somebody might come before you and make that argument. I can't say they wouldn't. Suppose the Mississippi legislature over here Oh, here. sorry. Suppose the, very strange uh, acoustics, Your Honor. Suppose the Mississippi legislature tomorrow uh, adopted a new disenfranchisement rule, all all felonies. What's your position on that? Um, my position um, uh, would be perhaps weaker, but the same, Your Honor. Or at least it would not contain all the elements of this being completely, honestly, random. Um, Doesn't that conflict with Richardson? Because I thought the whole point of Richardson was that the Section 2 framework of 14th Amendment essentially gets rid of Section 1. This, this is literally a Section 2 uh, hypothetical that I'm giving you, right? All crime. Yeah, no, I, Your Honor, I think it's quite clear that Section 2 um, doesn't get rid of Section 1. Um, your own concurren concurrence and harness acknowledge that there are other parts of the Constitution that might apply. Um, as the question before Richardson itself. Right, but, but that's why I'm asking you this question, right? Uh, it, I, I, my, my concurrence made clear if you enforce a disenfranchisement in a particular way, a racist way, uh, a way that you know, only, only Democrats or only Republicans, a First Amendment violation, of course, there could be execution problems. I'm giving you the hypothetical that nails us down. All felonies are now subject to disenfranchisement. Why is that not exactly what Richardson was talking about? Well, it, it may have been what Richardson was talking about, but it was talking about it more than 50 years ago without facing an Eighth Amendment challenge. Again, we reserve our other arguments on Richardson, clear, but on— is, This is not technically an Eighth Amendment case, right? This is a 14th Amendment Section 1 case, or do you disagree with that? Uh, I'm in federal court. The way I get to the Eighth Amendment is through Section 1 of um, the 14th Amendment. Absolutely, Your Honor. Counsel, let me follow up on Judge Jones' question. Assuming that Louisiana, let's say, is the only state out of the 50 that imposes the death penalty for, pick your crime, but it's the only state that imposes a death penalty for that offense, would you say that that makes it unusual? It certainly makes it unusual. Okay, so, so we're left with the cruelty factor, cruel and unusual. Uh, how do we gauge the concept of cruelty, whether it's depriving someone of their right to vote or their liberty, who sets that bar? Do we look at the time of the law that was passed or the Constitution, or is that something that the legislature decides in modern times, 
Or is that something we look elsewhere for? Um, Your Honor, I think in terms of defining Eighth Amendment, you would want to look at today. So a law that was passed a long time ago, again, practices that were a long time ago that society thought were acceptable and not cruel and then not unusual, because they somewhat go together. Concepts of cruel can go with unusual. Um, that law could become unacceptable. And so I think the focus is on today. I think a factor a court would look at in the circumstance you just raised is the other 49 states, the District of Columbia, whatever jurisdictions they look at. That would be very relevant. We think it's relevant here. Well, logically, would we look at other countries, at, at what Europeans do, or whether people get caned for crimes in Indonesia? How far do we go with evaluating this current standard of cruelty? Your Honor, I think it probably depends on context. Um, I'm not here arguing the laws of any other countries. I'm arguing the laws of the many states of this country. Well, I'm just asking, but, where, where do we set the bar for this? I, I, uh, it, it, I understand you, you, I'm trying to find uh, some type of limiting principle or some type of guidance that gives us something to go to right away and make this determination. I, I think it depends on the context of what's being challenged. And so I think for voting, for voting in our American way, and I, obviously other countries vote, but we've been doing it for a very long time, and it's, it's the center of what we are, I posit. It's, it's the Supreme Court cases say it. I think it's an easy thing for my friend and I probably to agree on. Voting is very much the center of what we are. I think what other states do is quite relevant in this context, perhaps more relevant than in any other context, arguably. It's, it's the fabric of American society. So I'm curious the consequences of your cruel and unusual punishment theory on other aspects of felon rights. Uh, as you may know, there's a, uh, I, I, this was mentioned in one of our opinions in a case called U.S. versus Eakins, uh, a, a growing trend of criminal justice reformers being concerned about felon dis disarmament. A lot of prosecutors are saying that that's not fair uh, to go after felons uh, purely for gun possession. Uh, I, I take it at some point then, would your logic of your theory uh, allow public defenders to argue that felon uh, you know, 922 type offenses might be cruel and unusual? Yeah, again, Your Honor, not, not my case, but my reactions. But it's or local, that's it's different. Local, that's that it's I different. See why I'm asking. It's it's I, no, I'm taking I, the logic of your cruel and unusual theory and applying it to other types of rights, such as felon disarmament. And I think the question's been raised, perhaps by Judge Jones, at, at the first argument on um, on other recreational activities or on sitting on a jury. And I get that there are lots of other rights. And this one's an express enumerated right that I'm talking about, the, the Second Amendment. Yeah, um, can't be lawyers. Most places. Isn't that an infringement on their fundamental rights? Um, so, so there are cases um, on lawyers. There are cases on physicians. I think that is, your, Judge Jones, a property right. It's a different type of, it's a licensing right, and it is different than voting. And I will say that if I cannot convince you that voting is in some way different than a lot of the things we're talking about, then I will not convince some of you. Well, that's, what I, that's why I mentioned the Second Amendment. First, it's a happy press to... constitutional right. I assume we. I, I think I, the Second Amendment, at least as much as the right to yeah. vote. How how would that analysis apply to uh, 922G? Well, I, I don't. I, recognizing that there is a, the Second Amendment does guarantee certain rights to bear arms with certain restrictions. It's not, in my view, as broad as the obvious right to vote without restrictions. Right. The Second Amendment is a much more complicated um, amendment in certain circumstances. 
Um, I would say the statute. Right. If you have the a, statute if you have that a felon you're, who also involves some of these other circumstances, fine, we can have that conversation. I, but, I, but again, if, if it's cruel and unusual to deprive a felon of one right, I'm assuming we would apply that to other rights. Why favor voting over other express enumerated I, constitutional rights? I think it, to answer your question, Your Honor, it might apply to other rights. It does not seem to be as strong an argument, in my view, as the one I'm trying why to make that, to you though? today. I guess what I'm wondering is if we rule in your favor, hypothetically, uh, why wouldn't the next move be federal public defenders across our circuit raising Eighth Amendment objections <laughs> to 922 convictions? I, well, I just think that would be a natural. I would they, do it if I were an Because FBI. they'd have to go through each of the hurdles that, that I must go through here. Oh, sure. Is it, is it but punishment? There is a, but there is a trend is it, of is people it talking about fel, felon disarmament being, being a bad policy. I, again, I don't have the statistics, Your Honor, but I don't know that, that you know, no more than, depending on how you count, you know, one out of five states. And frankly, I think there's a way here to count that it's really only Mississippi and Virginia that have the laws exactly as, as, as extreme. And by that, I mean in only those two states by our count is every disenfranchised crime, every one in the permanent list forever till you die. And those, so I, I can actually tell you to answer the question, how do we count? I can count that we're one out of, that, that the state of Mississippi is one of, out of 25. And in fact, Markedly is different than Louisiana and Texas, the other two states that make up this circuit, which, you know, some number of years ago changed their laws uh, toward the national consensus. Counsel, you're talking about how to do the numbers. It, it seems to me that your argument really is a categorical argument, in part uh, by what Judge Duncan quoted from Richardson and what you know fully well, that what is a legislative judgment? It seems to me if you're looking at individual crimes, even if they're, they seem like a random list, that is still a legislative judgment. It seems to me your principal argument that would withstand that is really looking at the category of permanent versus temporary. And I'm, I mean, whatever merit either one of you has in your arguments, it does seem to me there's less merit in your argument that there's a problem with the list than there is merit potentially in your argument that there should be no list for permanent disfranchisement. And, and so if, if, Your Honor, it, that is a clear category, it's a bright line, and it's one that if we go to the numbers, the trend is overwhelming from 42 in the 60s to 32 in 1974 to 21 in 2000 to 15 in 2020 and arguably a few fewer today. And so there is a huge trend, a huge national consensus. Um, I do think the fact that the way Mississippi does it is notable, and I think the fact that most of those states that are in that 15 actually don't do it for, well, most, meaning all but two, don't do it for their, um, all of their disenfranchising crimes, feeds into both the unusualness and actually the punishment aspect of it. Because I think while this is not a, we are not bringing a racial case, this is not harness, at least not the 241 challenge, the 253 where you get to it does have a racial aspect. Um, it feeds into the punishment thing. And what I wanted to get to, because it is a comparison with the Thompson case in the 11th Circuit looking at Alabama, and it goes to counsel's argument that, look where this is, it's in the categories. There's a huge difference between the Alabama statute, which also says you have to have lived there a certain amount of time and age, and Mississippi, which has those same types of provisions. Um, and the difference is, and this is um, very much in the briefs in the Alabama case, 
In Alabama, you are disenfranchised if you committed these crimes anywhere. So if you committed them in Mississippi and moved to Alabama, you would be disenfranchised. The converse is not true. If you're in Alabama and commit a crime and move to Mississippi, Mississippi doesn't speak to you on this subject. And the distinction that the council made in that case and the court makes specifically is that it couldn't be penal in Alabama because Alabama has no ability to punish somebody from Mississippi for committing a crime. In Mississippi, and this goes to all the subjective factors as to why this is punishment, even if you get past the Readmission Act, which I don't think you can, but if you do, it shows that in passing this, they were tying it directly to scienter-based crimes that somebody was convicted of. And in addition to years of time in prison or parole or whatever it would be, there was also the punishment of taking away the franchise of voting for life. Mr. Youngblood, yeah. back to the distinction between permanent and temporary disenfranchisement. Is it your argument that to permanently disenfranchise any felon who has completed his or her sentence violates the Eighth Amendment? This is a, similar to a question. I think there could be a different statute with a different history. Okay, so if a state says, if you're, you're, you're a rapist, you served your 40 years, you served your time, but you're still permanently disenfranchised because we don't think somebody who committed rape needs to be part of the franchise. Is that cruel and unusual punishment? Your Honor, it's possible if that was as narrow as the statute was or it was very closely defined only to rape, murder, and there was a reason that it had something to do with the franchise. Maybe the answer is so horribly heinous um, or you tied in a voter crime. I think it'd be an extraordinarily different case than the one that's Okay, armed robbery. I served my 35 years armed robbery. I served my time, but we still don't want people who committed armed robbery to be voting. Does that violate the Eighth Amendment? I, I think the broader you get, the harder, the closer it gets to this case. And also, many of those may not have been passed as punishment. This one, the history is quite clear. Stealing a car. You served your 25 years, you did your time, but we still don't want people who stole cars to be voting for mayor. Is that cruel and unusual punishment? I'd have to look at what the other states did, what the reason was. Maybe my, I mean, I I, my point is probably more. clear at this point that these are legislative judgments. There is no judicial um, uh, calculus available to tell the difference between a rapist and an armed robber or a car thief or a timber thief for that matter. Well, Your Honor, I, again, the, 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 the example is obviously a, a, an easy one for us, but the timber larceny one, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. Why not? What if someone stole my timber? Why should I want that person voting? It's my timber. It's a be, theft. Be, it, it depends, Your Honor, if you attached it for purposes of punishment, and in that example, it's very hard for me to see why you would do it other than for punishment. Again, not our case, but it would be very hard. Here we have a clear history, a clear history of what the Mississippi um, Constitutional Convention did when they first put this and what follows. But focusing just on that, just on that, in a world where you had the Readmission Act, the Readmission Act, which is prominently featured in Justice Rehnquist's majority opinion in Richardson. Well, it's, it's featured, excuse me, if you read it carefully, it's featured in order to show 
that everybody in the Reconstruction uh, Congress thought the disenfranchising felons was okay. Yeah, and I, that leads me to two, two questions I had. What do you do about the fact that no other circuit court has adopted the argument that disenfranchisement is unconstitutional? And are you relying on the Readmission Act? So we are relying on the Readmission Act and other things. And we are relying on the Readmission Act for two possible arguments, two arguments. One, it was a condition of re-entry into um, the Union, clear as day. And in fact, although not quoted in the briefs, but quoted in Richardson, and I believe quoted in the panel's decision, it wasn't just a condition, it was called a fundamental condition, not just in the Mississippi Readmission Act, but in the other Southern states' Readmission Acts. But it also goes to, um, and, and obviously, Judge Jones, I've read your dissent. We are not arguing that Mississippi is not admitted to the Union. We are arguing that when it passed this, it understood that to put these crimes in the category of permanent disenfranchisement was simply to label them as punishment. Let me ask you about that, though, a little further, because when Justice Rehnquist goes through his very uh, thorough, I assume, exposition about the evolution of these uh, of these uh, sections of the 14th Amendment, he deals with the statute that came one year before Arkansas, I believe, was readmitted under the Readmission Act, Arkansas Act being the model for all the later ones. That was the Reconstruction Act of 1867. And it just referred to disenfranchisement of felons. It didn't use the talismanic word punishment. Now, doesn't that lend support for um, the idea that one year later, they, and of course, with all the historical reference he has about <coughs> legislative intent, but one year later, Congress wasn't sub silentio uh, uh, importing some nefarious characterization of disenfranchisement that it could only be resurrected like the mummy after 1961. In other words, don't you have to, you, you yourself talked about the historical background, don't you have to look at the Readmission Act in terms of the one year preceding statute? Well, Your Honor, I don't think the, um, the act that preceded the Readmission Act said it wasn't punishment. I don't think it qualified it, but it, in any event, the later, the later past act is explicit, except as a punishment for such crimes as are now felonies at common law. Mr. Youngwood, what exactly, I'm up over here, what exactly do you want us to hold? Very confused at this point. Are we hold, do you want us to hold that because it's allegedly under-inclusive and over-inclusive, that somehow facially violative, uh, because you can find particular examples that seem to not fit? Or are you asking us to say that permanent disenfranchisement is, is cruel and unusual, but I thought you weren't asking us that. It's very unclear to me where you specifically draw your line in this facial challenge. Could you please clarify? We're asking to declare 241 unconstitutional. The um, reasons are many, and they are in their brief. The, the crispest and easiest is that um, a statute passed as punishment 
that is an outlier, that is about a fundamental right voting, that taking it away for life, divorced completely from length of sentence, is cruel, it's unusual, it's completely out of step with the overwhelming supermajority of the other states, which is what the Supreme Court looks at. Counsel, if I'm allowed to ask one more question. Are you, you are, I, I don't understand you to be resisting legislative judgment. Tell me if I'm wrong. Your argument not. is this, that the Supreme Court has said, in this circumstance, we look at empirically the legislative judgment of the country. And your argument is legislatures around the country have now overwhelmingly, since Richardson, especially since 97, said that a permanent disenfranchisement that is freakish or arbitrary in the crimes it chooses and has Mississippi's history, that, is, is that your argument? It is, Your Honor. I, I, I want to ask you, I don't understand, with due respect to the sincere feelings of others, what Mississippi's history has to do with this because cert was denied in the equal protection challenge to this provision. Uh, Your Honor, it, it, look at, if we're going to look at the Mississippi law, we have to look at it as it was readopted by the voters uh, uh, in the 1960s and the legislature refusing to reconsider in the 1980s. Although, Your Honor, the, the strictures of the Readmission Act would still, I believe, apply. The context would apply. The way this law has been treated would apply. I'll repeat, I am not making a racial challenge to 241, not in any way. But 241 was first passed in the 1890s. As Your Honor says, crimes were added, crimes were taken away. That is all relevant. But what happened at the beginning is relevant, not as a racial challenge, but for an understanding for how the law has been treated, how it acts, and how it affects um, citizens in Mississippi. Can I ask a follow-up question to Judge, Judge Higginson's question? <clears throat> if I understand sort of the agreement between the two of you, the theory is essentially one of arbitrariness, that some things are subject to disenfranchisement, others are not, and it's sort of kind of a crazy quilt. Is that sort of your theory? Your, your Honor, I think that helps. I think my base theory, and again, to answer Your Honor's questions, those weren't my cases. They might be more complicated. But the core is, the core is, I don't want anyone to see us backing down on this, that the Mississippi law is unconstitutional because it's permanent after terms of sentence are completed. Okay, but I mean, Section 2 allows for permanence. So uh, to me, let's just focus on this sort of notion of the randomness of the crimes. It just doesn't make sense. You can kind of ridicule which crimes are subject and which crimes are not. Couldn't you say the same thing about federal criminal law? I mean, our, our crime of violence, categorical rule, that whole body of law can result, does result, in a lot of crazy situations where some crimes are punished very harshly, some crimes not, not harshly at all, and yet uh, the facts would suggest the opposite. I'm just wondering, the, the consequences of your cruel and unusual punishment theory are, are really quite dramatic. I, I think we'd have to strike down a lot more than just this one law. Yeah, I, I, again, Your Honor, I'm not going to argue the, the next case or the case after that. But you understand... Yeah. I think this is actually in some ways quite a narrow challenge um, in terms of the uniqueness of these facts, and that does get but to the idea is you can point to two crimes, one which is clearly worse than the other, and yet the punishment is off. I'm just wondering how that applies to actual you know, prison sentences. Uh, I'm just, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Counselor. Thank you, Your Honors.
Thank you, Your Honor. I'd like to uh, do my best to make three points. Um, first, um, the colloquy with Judge Duncan, I think, illustrates something very clear. Um, Mr. Youngwood conceded, as I understand it, stand it, that a state could permanently disenfranchise in some circumstances. He mentioned, I think, rape, murder, um, voter crime as examples. With that concession, I, that dooms his Eighth Amendment case. This is a, a facial Eighth Amendment also challenge. Concede that the case, that Richardson was remanded on an as-applied basis. I, for, Isn't I, that your concession in your opening argument as, administer, as well? As administered in, in practice, you know, is it administered arbitrarily, Your Honor? That's that's quite a bit different than does does the Eighth Amendment um, bar all permanent felon disenfranchisement. And again, the concession, again, it was, the plaintiffs chose to bring this as a facial claim, as an as-applied claim. They wanted to go big. They wanted to completely knock out permanent disenfranchisement in Mississippi. That makes their burden incredibly difficult, especially when they have to show that this is a punishment by, uh, by cl the clearest proof. Um, they can't show that. Uh, Judge Jones, you were exactly right when you, when you said, hey, you have to look at 1968, the version of the law that's, that's in effect now on its face. It is not penal. Um, number two, I mentioned earlier on this, and it came up um, from my friend Mr. Youngwood a few times, he mentioned voting is critical, it's very important, and he suggested that that is sort of a distinguishing or limiting principle in these punishment cases. That is not a distinguishing or limiting principle. Recognize, Richardson itself recognized that voting was important. Voting was already subject, was already um, a strict scrutiny fundamental right proposition um, at the time that the Supreme Court decided Richardson, and the Supreme Court said, no, we will not apply strict scrutiny here. I would also say, again, in these cases, in these cases about whether something is a constitutional punishment, I mean, these things are always involving important things. I mean, again, liberty, that's Salerno and Hendricks. Um, occupational debarment. your argument that it was never meant to be punishment or that it, we can conclude now that it's not punishment post-1968? Um, I'd say that on this record here, the operative provision is not punishment. I know of no evidence that would, that would make the 1890 version punishment either, Your Honor. I mean, again, neither of them are on their face punishment. And, that, and that's what you look at at step one of uh, the Smith versus Doe intent effects regime. Other than the placement of the provision that refers to this, this list of crimes, what evidence is there that it wasn't meant to be punishment? That it, it describes qualifications for voters, that it's not labeled punishment, um, that, it, it, that it sets down things that are traditionally um, qualifications like registration, residency, um, age. I mean, those are not thought to be punitive things. Those are just regulations of the franchise that are civil, regulatory, and non-punitive. So it, those features, Your Honor, I mean... I, but that's based on what it's close to. I'm, I'm sorry? That's based on the placement of the language. Is that what we're talking about? I mean, the, the text and structure of the statute, or uh, of the constitutional provision, Judge Graves, I mean, that's what the, the, the Supreme Court tells us to look at, is text and structure is what we look at, the face of the provision at issue. And the face of the provision, I mean, you can also look at the implementing statutes, um, where, you know, placement, all of those things show, you know, as I think it was in Hendricks, the Supreme Court said, nothing on the face of Section 241, adapting that here, um, shows a punitive intent. And especially when the, the plaintiffs have this, this significant burden, um, they just can't overcome it with clearest proof. Again, as I said before, in thinking about whether something's penal or not, you're going to face, you know, liberty, occupational debarment, um, being free from double jeopardy, hugely, hugely important in these cases um, that involve, you know, is something a punishment or not. Um, and the Supreme Court has held that even those things, no matter how severe they are, no matter how harshly they could affect people's lives, the Supreme Court has held things like that not to be punishment and, then not, and therefore not subject to things like the Eighth Amendment, the Due Process Clause, 
um, the, uh, the cruel and unusual punishments clause, those kinds of things. Um, last, I'd just say on the um, kind of the Eighth Amendment analysis, this categorical question that we've been discussing, you know, I think a number, a, a number of um, the, the members of the en banc panel have said today, look, adopting the plaintiff's position would create a real line drawing problem. There's no limiting principle. Um, the court would have to do lots of striking down. I mean, again, how do you knock jurors off of a jury for being, you know, under, you know, an indictment or something like that? I mean, that could be an invalidation of federal law right there if this court adopts the plaintiff's position. But again, I mean, it's something to say death is different. It's something to say juveniles are different. Um, it's an entirely different thing to say that felons are different, somehow different in kind, and should be treated differently. Um, with that, we ask the court to reject the plaintiff's Eighth Amendment claim. And uh, on the other claims, we're content with how the panel ruled. Thank you, Your Honor. The court will take a brief recess. <laughs>